As you made your way in this morning, uh, many of you noticed or were offered a little uh, little LED candle. I, re I don't have one in my pocket, so this announcement is for me. Uh, if you did not receive it, uh, there are more here at the communion table. This will be a part of our extended prayer and reflection and response at the conclusion of the service today, at the conclusion of the sermon today. And because we are so close to the church's tradition of remembering all the saints, uh, those who have been formative examples in our lives, those who have made us in many ways who we are in faith and are now gone from our sight, this is an opportunity for us to reflect and to remember. And one of the powerful symbols we've been given for times like this is that of life. And so I invite you to pray with me. Almighty God, as the days shorten, as shadows lengthen, part of us welcomes the changing season that's now upon us, a break from the heat, the beauty of the falling leaves. And yet we also know that this season holds for us trepidation, concern, anxiety, for we know the days will continue to shorten, the darkness will continue to extend over our lives, and the cold will remind us of the cold places in our souls and spirits. Those places in our lives that are vacant, dormant, and empty. Reminding us also of those places in our lives that we hold back from you and we hold back from one another hoping that by sequestering them in the darkness, our true vulnerability and our true need and our true brokenness cannot be seen by others. And yet today, as we gather, we remember how you spoke light into the world, and it was so, and it was good. We remember that your word assures us that where there is light, there can be no darkness at all that your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our paths. And today we gather in the name of the one you have given to us, our Lord Jesus, the word made flesh, the light of the world. And today we remember his promise to be with us even to the end of things. And so as we worship, we light a Christ candle. It reminds us of his constant presence with us. And we need that constancy. We need that companionship. And we know all of our symbols fail to capture all of it. A strong gust could whip up and extinguish the flame that we light, but that does not mean you are absent. Gracious God, we reflect now in silence, remembering how you revealed your presence, your truth, and your healing to us through Jesus Christ, our constant companion.
Lord Jesus, you said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so we thank you today, Jesus, for being the light in our darkness, the one who has lifted us from our bondage to sin into a commitment of love and of salvation. For in so doing, you told us who we really are, that we too, in you, are the light of the world. We don't create that light in and of ourselves, but we are to bear your light out into the world. And so help us to let our lights to shine, even in the midst of our own awareness of darkness that continues to encroach or threaten. Where your light shines, there can be no darkness at all. Train all of our senses to that light and lead us by your word and your faithfulness where you would have us to be safely in your presence out in the world so that others living in darkness might see your light in us. Let it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.
Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. We'll be reading verses 16 through 20. Familiar words to many of us who grew up in Baptist church, for many of us who grew up in church at all. For found in these words are what are commonly known as Jesus' great commission to his disciples. Having gathered them on a mountain, after his resurrection, some scholars suggest the same mountain where he delivered new law in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus now preparing them for that time when he is gone from their sight and nevertheless present with them, commissions them from that place to new work. Work for which they are woefully underprepared, at least mentally, unable to understand all that this commission might call out of them. But all the great promises that we make in our lives are usually built uh, with that sort of naivete. I often ask, how many of you, when you, you know, stand at the altar uh, with your special someone for the rest of your life, really understand what it means when you say for better and for worse, richer and poorer, in sickness and in health. You don't know all the ways those promises are going to call something out of you you never knew existed. Jesus has placed in his disciples all that they need. His own spirit. His own presence. And yet, as they make their way out through life, they are also going to have to find their own way of fulfilling this commission. That when they say yes, explicitly or implicitly to Jesus as they put one foot in front of the other, walking down that mountain, everything is going to change. And if we can put ourselves in their shoes, even for a moment, we might begin to understand just how much they don't know. And yet what they do know is sufficient for all the rest. Hear these words. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. We've been focusing on, uh, on three good verbs in each and every passage that we've been reading. Not the only verbs in the passage that we're reading, not the only good verbs, but at some point you have to find your limits. And so today we are going to be focusing on three verbs that in a sense aren't quite verbs, at least not in the, in the Greek text. Go, baptize, and teach. Each one of these, and this is not to bore you at all, are, are verbs that have been manipulated in what is called a, a participle to function something like a noun, something like a verb, 
uh, they, do, they do a lot of work in communicating more than action. They communicate things like context. They communicate uh, time sometimes. They communicate emphasis, be that as it may. I want us to hang on to those three verbs. Go, baptize, and teach. Because when we tie them together, they provide for us, I think, a very strong cord that we can hang on to as we leave this place and as we go about in the daily living of our lives. How does Ecclesiastes put it? A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So we're going to weave those three together and see how they fit. Go. Again, growing up in Baptist church, there was no more noble emphasis. There was no more noble commitment, I think, that anyone could state out in public other than a sense that they were supposed to go somewhere, specifically on mission. It was a noble and worthwhile commitment to take a step forward and to say, I will go, and immediately our imagination starts to look around the world. Well, she might go to Botswana. He might go to China. He might go to Vietnam. But when I was growing up, when we talked about going, we very seldom talked about Food Lion, Stafford High School, the Defense Department Laboratory at Dahlgren, the Dialysis Center. These were places my family went every week, sometimes every day. When Jesus tells his disciples to go, it's not the imperative of this sentence. Though sometimes we have broken it out as being the singular most important feature of Jesus' great commission. Get out of here! And of course this is very important. It's a very important reminder for all of us who have had those mountaintop experiences where Jesus has been so close to us we can reach out and touch him, feel him, experience him, see him, hear him. Oh, you never want to leave that place. And at the same time, Jesus repeatedly, when folks have that sort of experience, they've been healed, they've seen him transfigured, he does not tell them, well, just stick around here and let's camp out and just hold hands forever and ever. That's not the way Jesus works. He tells them, you go back to your village, you go back down the mountain, you need to go on living your life never to be the same again. That woman who experienced the amazing grace of Jesus hears those words, go and leave your life of sin. So going is important. As tempting as it is spiritually to camp out in those places where Jesus is most apparent to us, Jesus bids us to go. Not because he's sick and tired of us, but because there are sick souls out there in the world who in some way need to experience what it is you have been blessed to experience. You didn't earn it. It's been given to you. And it's something to share. All the best gifts are worth sharing. Go. And if we uh, you know, read a commentary, you would find out that that verb is not an imperative. It's not Jesus pointing and saying, go, get out of here. It's instead kind of a softer 
word that gives us a backdrop to everything else he's about to say. So in contemporary language, very often people will translate it differently. They'll say something like, as you go, or going, this is what I want you to do. It's noble to say yes to missions and to sign up for a life, for a career of serving others in a context not your own. It is valuable, but for the vast majority of us, sometimes we hold the rest of what Jesus has called us to back because that is not the call on our life. But how might it change if you start to remember that Jesus is not saying first go and you know take that, that helmet off of the, from under your arm, put it on, put yourself in a cannon and shoot yourself halfway across the world. But instead as you go, and you will be going to work, to school, to store, to the street corner, wherever you may find yourself. Near or far, there's work to do. Go. And as you go, make disciples. That's the imperative. And then he breaks out for us what, what that looks like with two great strains. The first is to baptize. Make disciples to, of all people, baptizing them. Now, we're a Baptist church, and we love to baptize. I've seen it over and over again, how people show up expecting a, a fairly ordinary experience, and the second we turn our attention to what happens here, no matter the age, no matter the experience, what happens here is an energizing and rejuvenating experience because we can see and we can experience and we can witness in, in, in symbolic language of water and calling upon God and seeing someone go under and back up the powerful transformation of spirit and of life that comes when someone says yes to Jesus. That's what baptism shines out for all of us to be able to see and witness and experience. Some of us can remember when we were baptized too. Sometimes we assess and say, gosh, it's fallen away from that promise in a big way. Or sometimes it brings it right back into focus. And you can experience with joy how God is working in your life right now. However it goes to work on you, baptism goes to work on a community. It is not just an individual experience. And each individual experience in some way begins to add kind of links of mem to the chain of our memory. Anytime I think about baptism, I start to scroll back and I think about all the times when I've stood in the water with someone. And it's a very humbling experience. Sometimes they're very small, sometimes they're very tall. Sometimes they're very large, sometimes not so much. But as we try and coax out the story of their faith and their testimony, I have them write it down, and as you know, somebody reads it, and we hear each one of those stories, and we hear how uniquely and personally God goes to work in somebody's life. So I thought about Chris this week. I hadn't thought about him in a while. He's died. Uh, he was a young man and died way too young. And he was about five years younger than I was when I met him. 
and he looked about 30 years older than I did because he was, he was a very hard-living kind of soul. He was kind of nominally a member of the church where I was pastoring at the time, uh, but he hadn't been in a long time. He was one of those that they considered something of a prodigal. But I connected with him face-to-face -face, uh, in the VA hospital here. I'd driven up from Smithfield. His father was dying. He had cancer. He was on the Agent Orange list. And, uh, and as his father lay dying there in the VA, I could see Chris sort of sitting in the corner. And he was just a big pile of leather and studs and tattoos, just sitting there, lost. And he was depressed. And, and, and you could tell he was just on the edge. That very little thing could, could just sort of set him off. He was that volatile. And after that visit, after I'd introduced myself and spent some time with him and with his dad, uh, he reached out to me. He called me and he said he admired how calm I was and how caring I was. And he wanted both of those. He wanted care and he wanted calm. And so I invited him over to my office and waited for him. And I heard his, his Harley kind of rumble up into the parking lot and he make his way in and we sit and we talk sometimes for hours. And week after week, he would come by, hear the Harley, he would knock on my door. And one of the things that provided sort of a syllabus for our conversation, you never know how to start a conversation like that, were, were his tattoos. Each one, really, honestly, was a work of art. And each one of those tattoos had a story about a time in his life or a message that he had learned. Uh, and there was one on his arm that was the one I remember the most um, because it was one of those that if you looked at it one way, it read one word and you turn it over and it would read another word. So when he held it this way, it said death. And then when you turn it over the other way, it said life. And he talked about that. That was really the story of how he had lived his life, just kind of right on that razor's edge of life and of death. And we talked about his present. We talked about the future, I told him some of my story and, and expressed to him as honestly as I could, whatever peace, whatever hospitality, whatever love that he experienced from me was the fruit of knowing and following Jesus. That was not unique to me. It was something that he could do too. And one day he called me excited. He said he had decided to follow Jesus, whatever that took. And he met me in the front of the sanctuary. And to my surprise, his wife joined him. And his children followed after. They wanted this to be a family commitment. They wanted it all together. And so as I stood in the water with, with Chris, I'll never forget, as I'm holding his arm in the way you have to hold the arm and do those things, um, I couldn't read death on his tattoo. As I held it out, all I could read was one word, life. It was Russell. Russell was seven years old. When he decided to be baptized, it was overdue, uh, very overdue for him. He had a career in the military, and so everything about him was sort of dutiful and honorable, and he just wanted to do the right thing and wanted to do it by the rules. But time had sort of crept along, and he had been involved in church so long, he was embarrassed to show that he had never kind of publicly borne witness to his faith in baptism. And no one asked. After a while, they just sort of assumed. But then... After his wife died, he came to me and said, I, I think I need to follow through on this. 
as he worked through his grief, as he works through his commitment, there was nothing that he needed to, to make up for as much as something to hold on to. And at just the right time, he said, I want to be baptized. And so he made his way. He always walked with a cane, kind of with a cane into the baptistry, and we hung it up on the, we hung it up on the rail, and he entered the waters and left again, marked by grace and with hope. Darby was just a little girl. She was very precocious. She was an only child and very eager to be a part of church life. She was always there and always in some way trying to do the right thing. But one of the things I've learned about only children is they are incredibly self-differentiated at a young age. They know what they want and they know how they're going to do it. And even though her parents hoped and expected that she would be baptized according to their timeline, she sort of said no. Until one weekend at a retreat, like Danny said, as she sat with the youth minister and some of the other children, she said, you know, I think it's time. I think I want to follow Jesus. And I got a call from the retreat, from the youth minister. She was so excited, angels dancing, you know. She's made a decision for Christ. And when she came back, then it was my job to say, okay, when do you want to do it? And she said, not yet. Okay, well, when? I don't know. So I gave her a coupon and wrote on there it was good for one baptism. And I said, when you're ready to cash this in, you just come forward. And about a year later, she came dancing down the aisle, waving that coupon. It was time. Each one has a story unique to the person and unique to the way God goes to work in their life. But how will they ever know that God is at work unless we are there in some way to help them see how God is at work in our lives, in their lives, and around? That's all we can do. We can't explain all of the inner workings of their pain. We can't always explain and have enough information to persuade someone into a new way of thinking if it's not authenticated by what we do. So we baptize. We, we welcome those who seek to follow Jesus in the same way we always have, into the water and out of the water. But it's more than just a mechanical act. Around that, through that, and in that is the teaching ministry of every disciple. And some of you all um, blow me away with what you know. You have so much knowledge. You've read more books than I have, and I think you have a keener understanding of the width and breadth of Christian theology and history. It's an honor sometimes to preach to some of you because I know how much you know. But that pales in comparison to the examples you all set of robust faithfulness. That how much we know about the faith, in my mind, pales in comparison to how people know the faith through us. We often quote to young people that excerpt from you know, Paul's encouragement to Timothy, do not let people look down on you because you are young. Well, of course, but there's a follow-up. But set an example. An example. That's the teaching ministry of the church. 
yoking together our constant intellectual journey to know more and connecting that to the real outworking of our lives so that all of that knowledge is run through a moral and ethical framework that makes a difference in the lives of others that is impactful and above all persuasive. So I look back on my own life and I think about someone like Lucy May Scott. Lucy May taught me how to pray. And Alice Goode was the one who taught me to sing with joy. My father, John Ingram, senior, who taught me to keep my commitments. And my mother taught me that love never fails. Watt Hamlet, of all people in college, taught me that I was worth the time and the effort. John Tadlock was a man who taught me to look beyond my own imagination and imagine that I can do ministry anywhere and everywhere in the world. You have your own roll call of those who made a difference in you. As you go from this place, might you be on someone else's roll? Not because you had all the answers, but because you were willing to risk living your life of faith out loud. Understanding that for all of us, as we go, as we welcome new pilgrims on this journey home with Jesus, we can share lives together that teach and that welcome, that celebrate the good work of grace that God is doing. As I mentioned before, we are in a season where we do remember those who have made the difference for us. We remember those whose lives and example have led us through the waters of baptism into a growing and flourishing relationship with God in Jesus Christ. As we respond today, I want you to consider not only in that look back with gratitude, those who made the difference for you, gods and messengers and angels of grace and love and mercy, but also dare to believe that what Jesus has given to us today is now ours to fulfill, that we might join them as part of that great roll call. invite you to join me in moving into a time of response and remembrance for those people in our lives who have shown us what Christ's love has looked like. As Christopher had said and prayed so beautifully, Christ, in word and in demonstration of love, was that light of the world and is the light of the world. And we are all here because someone chose to show us that very Christ light in our times of darkness. And we all have stories about those people. So for our response today, we're going to be looking back into those moments and remembering and honoring God in those witnesses of light that we have known and we have loved and who knew and loved us first. Take a moment and think of that person who was once that Christ light to you. This may be someone who is still in your life 
or someone you haven't seen in a while, or someone you may have lost. These are the people who have nurtured us, shaped us into the Christians that we are today. They have shown us our calling that despite whatever comes, we must grant the same love to those around us. As you think of that person, in your bulletin, you will find a candle. This represents that light that was first shown to you through those people who have shaped you. Take a moment or take some time to reflect by writing or drawing on this candle about how you saw the presence of God through those people in a time of darkness and the impact that that person had on you that shaped your perception of love. Do this now. participation in all that Christ has asked us to do, loving our neighbors, being there for others, serving the needy, giving selflessly, we are to remember Jesus who first cared for us. With candles, we can remember Jesus through these people who were the lights in the darkness and live in their impact on us. When we speak about them, we remember that impact as it is through the, these beloved friends and family members that we have known and seen God these interactions show us how we can demonstrate Jesus' love to others. We're going to honor these beloved saints now. In a moment, you will be invited to come down to this table and take a candle if you haven't already gotten one. And one, if you haven't gotten one yet, it's okay because we have others. You are invited to grab one, as Christopher said. And well, as you come, once you light it, <laughs> place it on the table near someone else's candle, all around our giant Christ candle. And as you return to your seat, walk in silent prayer for God to continue revealing these people, these lights, God's nature to you through these people. If you are not comfortable walking down, you may raise your hand and someone will bring you a candle to your seat or bring your candle down for you. Ask God to help you embody love, make the same kind of impact on others. Come to Christ's table now, all who love him, in remembrance of Jesus, and show, see our community that is rooted and grounded in love.
greatest lights in the world, all united in Christ Jesus. Our community has been impacted by these saints who were the light to us. We love because they once loved us. Though we may lose people we love, we never need to mourn for God's presence with us, for it is always a part of us, because these people embody the light inspired by Jesus and have equipped us to know how we can spread that light. Through the love of God emanating within us, we can move mountains because of those people who first loved us. I encourage you to take these candles with you, these lights, as a reminder of your why, your reason for the inspired love that you will give. Go now into the world in remembrance of them, and with God working in you, be that light to someone else. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine upon you and be gracious to you and grant you with everlasting peace.